I am J.K. Richards, the founder, creator, and host of your beloved true crime series, where we treat crime seriously as your mysterious, murderous, and macabre podcast. In the past, and still to this day, I am a criminal defense attorney, where I view, assess, investigate, analyze, and reassess evidence again and again. If you are one looking for true stories of mystery, intrigue, vice, corruption, mayhem, violent malevolence, jealousy, greed, assault, insult, murder, and the macabre, well, you're in the right place. Quite the introduction, don't you think? I'm so excited to have you here for our first ever episode, The Crotchless Killing of Jane Doe. And again, I am J.K. Richards, and I'm your host of the Triple M Podcast, Mystery, Murder, and the Macabre. Jumping into this episode. Imagine that you're a woman living in Portland, Oregon, in the United States, in 1990. It wouldn't be for another three years, on April 30th, 1993, that the internet would launch for the public at large. Finding your way across an unknown city or town in the United States or anywhere in the world required the use of a map and grid system. Rating businesses or deciding who you would hire for any kind of work relied almost exclusively on word of mouth. Email was really only used by the government, big business, and universities. Text messaging on cell phones wouldn't exist for another nine years. Social media didn't exist, and cash and checkbooks were the most common way to pay for anything that you bought. In many ways, the world in 1990 was a much, much larger, colder, and more lonely place. It was easy to get totally lost, and it was so easy to disappear without a trace, including any electronic trace that others could follow. On the cold, and I imagine it as a foggy morning of January 21st, 1990, in Portland, Oregon, in the United States, Detective John Ingram, with the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office, was called out to investigate the oddest and probably what proved to be the most infamous homicide case of his career. Detective Ingram was tasked to go to the Columbia Gorge, which is approximately 17 miles east of Portland. Now, you have to understand that especially at that time, this is an obscure, out-of-the-way, and heavily wooded area. Detective Ingram traveled up a long, winding dirt road in the gorge, where he met up with other officers and investigators. And off to the side of that lonely dirt road, Detective Ingram and his companions began investigating reports of a dead body in the woods. The body was only about 10 feet from the road, but you could not see the body from the road. The body apparently belonged to an attractive young woman, likely in her 20s. The young woman had been asphyxiated to death, and a choke rope was found close to the body. The body had been left semi-undressed, with her jeans pulled down around her waist, to her ankles, which caused Detective Ingram and others to believe that a sex crime had also been committed. And among the most worrisome aspects related to the body was the fact that there was absolutely no identification to be found on or near the body. Detective Ingram and his counterparts had no idea how they were going to possibly identify this woman. And I am certain that from the outset, they worried that this could become just another horrible unsolved homicide cold case. This is where, once again, you need to remember the time period when this investigation was taking place. And how hard it could likely be to find the identity of this young woman. As luck would have it, they wouldn't have to wait long for help. Or would they? 
the final and most disconcerting aspect of this unidentifiable young girl's dead body that was dumped in the woods. This is the fact that, presumably, the killer had cut the crotch out of her jeans before leaving the body in the woods. Detective Ingram has said that he has never seen anything like this in his career before. Now, a question for you, the listener. What concern does this fact cause? In other words, the crotch being cut out of the jeans. Give rise to. We already have a dead young woman casually discarded off the side of the road, in the woods, without any respect for human life or human remains. She was left with her jeans pulled down around her ankles. She was choked to death, possibly one of the most horrific ways to die. The young girl had no identification on her. And beyond all of this, it appears that the killer took a souvenir for themselves, the crotch cut out of her jeans. Souvenirs taken from the bodies of someone murdered are generally only taken by serial killers. I can only imagine the horror and the worry and the concern that this caused Detective Ingram and law enforcement. Without the internet, social media, and the like, identifying the Columbia Gorge body would be tremendously difficult. So, Detective Ingram and law enforcement caused a rough pencil sketch of the victim's face to be commissioned by a sketch artist, which was circulated in the local media, newspapers and local television, and the like. This sketch is on the Triple M Podcast's website, and I strongly encourage you to go take a look at it. It is a very, very rough sketch. Without intending any disrespect to the sketch artist, the sketch really doesn't look anything like the woman found by Detective Ingram in the Columbia Gorge, east of Portland. Now at this point, remember, as I said before, it wouldn't take long before Detective Ingram and law enforcement received help in identifying the body. But as they often say, be careful what you wish for. Possibly I'm providing more eluding for you than I should in this case. I would employ the counsel, be careful what you focus on. About a week after the sketch was published, a woman contacted Detective Ingram and stated that she believed the woman in the sketch was her daughter. Detective Ingram met with a relative of the female caller, who also knew the woman's daughter, and took this relative to the medical examiner's office. And, sure enough, this relative positively identified the body as belonging to the daughter of the woman who had contacted Detective Ingram. The young female murder victim was Tanya Bennett. She was a 23-year-old woman, and she lived with her mother. Tanya's mother described Tanya as very loving, very kind, but she liked to party. She liked the bar scene, and it wasn't uncommon for Tanya to meet a man in a bar and spend a night or two with him. Now, if you thought the identification of the victim, it being 1990, and no identification being on the body came quickly, you're going to be amazed at how quickly the initial suspect was identified. Just remember the warnings that I've given you before. A few days later, that is, a few days after the identification of Tanya Bennett's body, a call came into the detective's area of the sheriff's office, but seemingly not directly to Detective Ingram. It was a female caller stating that she knows who committed the murder of the woman in the sketch, and that his name is John Sosnovsky. Seemingly, officers didn't take down the name or number of the person who called and left the tip. Detective Ingram only had the name of John Sosnovsky, 
So he went to their police databases and began running various and different spellings of the last name Sosnovsky. And finally, he found John Sosnovsky, and luckily, he was on probation. Detective Ingram then called John Sosnovsky's probation officer, who told Detective Ingram that he too had received a phone call from John Sosnovsky's girlfriend, Laverne Pavlinak. Miss Pavlinak had told the probation officer that her boyfriend, John Sosnovsky, was the person responsible for the murder of the woman in the sketch. Miss Pavlinak told the probation officer that she had heard John Sosnovsky telling another person in a bar that he had met Tanya Bennett. He said he picked her up and he murdered her later that night and that he then dumped her body near Vista House in the Columbia Gorge. And with that, Detective Ingram and law enforcement thought, all right, we've got something to go on here now. We have enough details now to initiate an investigation against a specific perpetrator. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying that any of them said this. Rather, this is the kind of thing they thought, which is evident from what happened next in the case and how the investigation progressed from this point forward. Next, Detective Ingram and his partner went to Laverne Pavlinak's home, and they interviewed her there. Detective Ingram has stated that his impression of Laverne Pavlinak was that she was a pleasant, kind, and older lady, and that he found her to be honest and believable. When they asked why she hadn't come forward immediately with the information that she had about this case, Ms. Pavlinak explained that she is afraid of her boyfriend, John Sosnovsky, that he has a temper, that he is an alcoholic, and that he has abused and harmed her in the past. She also stated, seemingly out of the blue, that Mr. Sosnovsky has an odd tick or behavior of incessantly tying all kinds of knots into rope. Ms. Pavlinak was approximately 58 years old at this time, and oddly, Mr. Sosnovsky was approximately 40 years of age at this time. So, quite an age gap between the two. Detective Ingram asked Laverne Pavlinak what she was doing on the evening of January 21st, to which Miss Pavlinak stated that John had asked her to take him to JB's Lounge in Wilsonville, Oregon. Laverne claimed that she then went home and that John arrived home between 1.30 and 2 a.m. and immediately took a shower. Miss Pavlinak also stated that the next morning she noticed that John had a bruise on his left hip and that he was complaining about his hands and wrist hurting him. The detectives asked if Miss Pavlinak would consent to a search of her residence, and Miss Pavlinak gave permission for the search. Detective Ingram has stated that while searching in the bedroom, he found an envelope addressed to John Sosnovsky, and on the back of the envelope was written, quote, T. Bennett, good peace, end quote. Peace spelled P-I-E-C-E. Detective Ingram has stated that at this point, things were looking pretty bad for John Sosnovsky. To offer a counterpoint, I would point out that things seem to be lining up really, really well. Things aren't always as they seem to be, but sometimes they are. So let's just take a minute and recap here. Let's go over the evidence that we have so far. A young girl, later identified as Tonya Bennett, is found dead at the Columbia Gorge, east of Portland. A sex crime is believed to have occurred, and the manner of death was asphyxiation by strangulation 
by a choke rope. Presumably, some or many of these details were provided in various releases by the press, as murder is always a hot topic in the news. A mere few days after the body is identified, a woman calls the sheriff's office where Detective Ingram works, as well as Mr. Sosnovsky's probation officer, informing both that John Sosnovsky is the person who killed Tanya Bennett. Furthermore, this individual stated that she knows this because she overheard him, later on discovered to be her boyfriend, admitting to all of this openly in a bar to another person. And upon being interviewed, this woman, Laverne Pavlinak, points out John's tick of tying knots into rope that he complained of his hands and wrist hurting the morning after Miss Bennett had been murdered and that he had a bruise on his left hip. And furthermore, the detectives find an envelope with the murder victim's name written on the back of the envelope, which was addressed to John Sosnowski. It certainly and absolutely seems like the criminal investigation gods are smiling upon law enforcement with all of these things just falling into place perfectly the way they seemingly never do. While still at Miss Pavlinak's home, during the interview with her, and after the detectives had searched her home, John Pavlinak arrived at the house. The detectives identified themselves as police officers, and Mr. Sosnowski volunteered to go with them to be interviewed. The following is an audio recording of the interview with Mr. Sosnowski. I'd like to ask you, do you know Tanya and Bennett? Not to my recollection, sir. We have been to your apartment and retrieved various things, one of them being a piece of paper with the name T. Period. Bennett, is that your printing? I cannot answer that in full honesty. So, when confronted with the envelope, Mr. Sosnovsky responds stating, I cannot answer that in full honestness with regard to whether or not it was his printing stating T. Period Bennett, good piece, on the back of the envelope. Generally, and across the board, any criminal defense attorney will tell you, never speak with the police. Now, this is not out of disrespect for the police or in an attempt to be obstructionistic, but rather this is based on the fact that humans do not have perfect recall. Humans also have an innate quality of filling in the gaps with whatever they can grasp at the moment. So, even in a situation where someone desires to be and is trying to be honest and frank and forthright, they fill in the gaps, they tell a story based on what they can remember in the moment. But then at a later point in time, after thinking about it more, they remember more. And at some point in the future, the story changes. And once that happens, you're absolutely considered to be a liar. You've changed the story. So while Mr. Sosnovsky should not have gone and spoken with the officers voluntarily, and even if they would have taken him in for questioning, which they can do involuntarily to a degree, at least until a person asserts their right to legal counsel, which cuts off any interrogation or questioning by police. The fact that Mr. Sosnovsky went with them and voluntarily was willing to be interviewed and questioned without legal counsel present, in my opinion, is indicative of one of two things. Either he thinks he's so intelligent that he can trick the police, or it's indicative of innocence. And in my opinion, 
Mr. Sosnovsky does not strike me as an overly intelligent person or someone who thinks that he's overly intelligent. Now, this is where, in this story, a new law enforcement entity comes into the case. On February 19th, 1990, Jim McIntyre's boss came to him and told him that they had this dead body that was found on January 21st, that investigators had been working the case, but that he, Jim McIntyre's boss, needed the investigation to be moved forward. Jim McIntyre was an assistant district attorney. His boss, the district attorney. In Jim McIntyre's own words, his boss viewed him as someone who was a little bit reckless, a little bit over the edge, someone who would start directing people and start pushing people around to get things done in a certain way. Detective Ingram briefed Jim McIntyre on the case and where they had gotten up to at that point. Mr. McIntyre was surprised that the detectives seemed to be stuck in their investigation and stalling out. Mr. McIntyre directed them to find a way to corroborate Ms. Pavlinak's claims and story in other words, that John Sosnowski is guilty, or to disprove that John Sosnowski was involved in Tanya Bennett's death and murder. Now, this is quite disconcerting, because now you've got the prosecuting authority, the district attorney's office, essentially directing the investigation, the ongoing investigation, of this case. In other words, you have those with the expertise that know exactly how to prove a case, what it's going to take, directing where the investigation goes and how the investigation proceeds. On the defense side of things, if defense attorneys ever did something like this, it would be considered witness tampering or evidence tampering. Now, legally, I'm not saying that the district attorney's office or law enforcement in this case did anything illegal. This is actually fairly common, but just because it's common doesn't mean it's not a problem, and it is a problem. It's a very big problem. Generally speaking, the way this is supposed to work is that law enforcement conducts the investigation. They look into whatever was reported to law enforcement. They gather the evidence. They interview the witnesses. They put the case together. Once they've done that, they then refer the case to the district attorney's office or the prosecuting office. And an attorney with the prosecuting office will review the case to determine whether or not they believe that probable cause exists to then ask a court to allow them to file charges or to convene a grand jury. Shortly after Assistant DA McIntyre came into this case and became involved, Detective Ingram received a follow-up phone call from Laverne Pavlinak. She stated that she had found some items that she thought would be of interest to law enforcement and to the investigation. So, once again, Detective Ingram and his partner went out to Laverne Pavlinak's home. Upon arriving there, Miss Pavlinak gave Detective Ingram an old-style brown paper grocery bag, which was stapled shut. And in it, Detective Ingram found a purse. And in the purse, Detective Ingram found a cutout crotch section of a pair of acid-washed jeans. Detective Ingram claims that this set off alarms for him, and it seemed too good to be true, but they still had to interview John Sosnovsky again. And unfortunately, the following is the interview that ensued in John Sosnovsky's own recorded statements. I make the above statement freely and voluntarily. I have been invited of my rights, which I understand. I have seen T. Bennett at J.B.'s truck stop on several occasions. The last time was 21 January 1990. I was visiting with Chuck who was playing darts. 
Later on in the evening, Chuck and T-Bat left shortly after. I believe she left to go to a motel room to have fun with Chuck. Later that evening, I saw Chuck ask him for a ride home. I believe I saw a body in the back of the car. I got into the front passenger seat. The body was wrapped in a blanket. The body was one of the white female adults. During this ride home, the dead female was in the back of the car. So now we've gone from Sosnowski not knowing Tanya Bennett at all and knowing absolutely nothing about her death or murder to he got a ride home from his buddy Chuck, who had a dead body in the back seat of the car, which apparently Chuck didn't feel that he needed to hide from John Sosnowski. And Sosnowski's reaction to this was essentially, hey, can I get a ride home with you? Oh, there's a dead body in your car? Well, that's fine. Just take me home. Thanks, Chuck. It's not credible. It's not believable. It's utterly farce and ridiculous. But it didn't deter law enforcement or supposedly intelligent attorneys in the prosecutor's office. And I can't fathom why someone being investigated, who knows they're being investigated, for a murder or in relation to a murder, would change their story in this manner. Knowingly going from, I don't know her at all, to I saw her dead body in the back of a car and I didn't call the cops and it was my buddy and he was fine with telling me and I just had him give me a ride home. It just seems like something was in the water causing everyone involved in this case to be stupid. But of course, and one of the reasons I picked this case, things are going to get a lot more stupid than they already have been, if you can believe that. Not long after the second interview with John Sosnowski, where he drastically changes his story, Detective Ingram's partner informs him that the lab had returned the results for the cutout crotch section of acid-washed jeans that Laverne Pavlinak had given to them. The crotch section of the jeans given to them by Laverne Pavlinak were not a match to the jeans on Tanya Bennett's body when law enforcement found her body in the woods. Again, the only conclusion I can come to is that there's something in the water. It, it just, it's universal. Every single person involved in this case seems affected by the same intellectual problem and deficiency. I feel like I have to explain this again because it's just so mind-blowingly stupid. So in short, Laverne Pavlinak previously had given the law enforcement officers, Detective Ingram and his partner, a cutout crotch section from acid-washed jeans. This, again, was in the stapled brown paper grocery bag that Laverne Pavlinak gave to them. And specifically, the crotch section of the jeans was in a purse, and the purse was in the brown paper grocery sack. So, in other words, the only conclusion that we can come to is that Laverne knowingly gave false evidence to the law enforcement officers which everyone knows is a crime in and of itself. So Detective Ingram and his partner go out to Laverne Pavlinak's home once again, and they confront her with the results from the crime lab that definitively determined that the cutout crotch section of genes provided to law enforcement by Laverne Pavlinak had nothing whatsoever to do with Tanya Bennett's death, her murder, and or clothing that was on her body when she was found. Immediately upon being confronted, Laverne caved and admitted that she had provided the crotch section of the jeans fraudulently to Detective Ingram and his partner. As her excuse, Laverne explained that she is just so terribly scared 
of John Sosnowski, that he had harmed her so horribly in the past, and that she really wanted him to get caught for the murder that he did commit, meaning Tanya Bennett's murder. And so, she explained to the detectives that she decided to make it easy on the police by providing the false cutout crotch section of jeans to Detective Ingram and his partner. With Laverne providing this explanation, Detective Ingram has stated that he felt bad for Laverne, and he felt that John Sosnowski must be a truly horrific monster. And so, they somewhat wiped the slate clean with Laverne, and they interviewed her again. And here is what Laverne Pavlinak said this time. Okay. What happened during the evening hours of January 21st, 1990? The phone rang. It was John Wisnowski calling to tell me he was in trouble and to come fast and to bring, bring something large to wrap them. What did you take with you when you went to see John at the JMB lab? When you arrived there, Laverne, what did you find? A female. She was lying um, on her side, very cold, very quiet. And John came up to the window. And I asked if she's sick. I said, I think we need to take her to a hospital. We need to report this job. He says, no, no, you're a death row. You will not do it because I will kill you and your family and your grandchildren. He opened the, the back door on the passenger side and pulled her out. He went off into the woods and he was gone about 15 minutes. So first, John Sosnowski changes his story, which I won't belabor again. And now Laverne changes her story from dropping John off at the bar with John then returning home between 1.30 and 2 a.m. to John calling Laverne, telling her to come quickly that she goes to him, that Tanya Bennett is dead upon her arrival. Laverne telling John that she thinks that they should take the girl, the body, to the hospital, with John then threatening to kill her, her family, and her grandchildren if she tries to force that, or if she tells on him, because he would go to death row for Tanya Bennett's death. And finally, with John going off into the woods, being gone for about 15 minutes, and him then returning to the car, alone. To say the very least here, once again, vastly, vastly different stories. Also, I really want to point out that supposedly, according to this new story from Laverne, John was gone for 15 minutes. But the body was found 10 feet off the road. How is this possible? Just something I want you to think about as we move forward. It's at this point that Detective Ingram and his partner and law enforcement decide they believe that they have enough evidence to arrest John Sosnowski for the murder of Tanya Bennett and 
Mr. Sosnovsky, was arrested at that time. Now, at this point, the detectives and law enforcement had no more actual evidence against John Sosnovsky than what they had when they were going to Laverne Pavlinak's home to confront her about her apparent fraud related to her planted evidence of the fraudulent cutout jeans crotch section. The only thing more that they did have was Laverne's explanation about how big of a monster John Sosnovsky is. In essence, the only thing more that they had was Laverne Pavlinak's corroboration that she had planted evidence. There was no new or additional physical evidence. There was no new or additional confession or testamentary potential evidence in the form of new statements from Laverne about what had occurred. Just her explanation about why she had lied and provided false evidence to the police. And seemingly that was sufficient for law enforcement to determine that they had enough to arrest. At this point, Detective Ingram and his partner had a meeting with Assistant DA Jim McIntyre. And they determined, or I'm guessing that Jim McIntyre determined, that they still needed more evidence to make a case stick against John Sosnowski. Which is absolutely correct. I believe that it's for this reason that they then put together a plan to test Laverne's actual knowledge about the case, using facts that she couldn't possibly know about the case, in other words, facts that had not been made publicly known through the press or media. They should have done this a long time ago, and probably before they ever interviewed John Zasnowski for the first time. If you remember, the interview with John Zasnowski came about because the detectives were at Laverne Pavlinak's home after the initial phone call to the sheriff's office and to the probation officer, and after the first interview with Laverne Pavlinak and their search of the home during or at the conclusion of that interview with Laverne Pavlinak. In other words, the first interaction with Laverne Pavlinak. And again, remember, John Sosnowski comes home. They speak with him right then and there, the station, and be interviewed by them. So the only thing they had, though emotionally maybe they felt like they had a lot at that point, was what Laverne had told them and this envelope addressed to John Sosnowski, on the back of which was written, T. Bennett, good piece. Still, they should have waited longer and gotten more information from Pavlinak before they interviewed John Sosnowski. So finally, at this point, we come around to them deciding to actually, in some meaningful way, test Laverne Pavlinak's actual knowledge about this case against facts that she couldn't have access to in any other way than actually knowing those facts herself. So, once again, the plan's put together, and Detective Ingram and his partner take Laverne Pavlinak on a car ride. With Laverne, they drove up to the Columbia Gorge and up the long, winding dirt road on which Tanya Bennett's body was found by law enforcement. They wanted Laverne to point out where the body had been dumped. They were testing to see if, in fact, she could identify where, supposedly, in her most recent story, she and John Sosnowski had driven to, and where John pulled the body out of the car, was gone for 15 minutes, supposedly, to dump the body just 10 feet off the road. So, again, 
They drove and they drove and they drove. As Detective Ingram has said about this, quote, we proceeded up past Crown Point and Vista House to the area where the body had been dumped. We drove on past the area where the body had been found. We kept on traveling eastbound. And then, suddenly, she said, stop the car and turn around. Laverne said, this gives me the creeps. And she pointed almost directly to where that body had been located. It couldn't have been a distance of more than 10 feet off. My gosh, she's nailed this. End quote. Now, this is where I have to make some observations about Laverne Pavlinak. And admittedly, these are opinions, and they involve some conjecture and speculation on my part. I believe, based on what I've discussed up to this point, that Laverne Pavlinak was a master people reader and a master manipulator. For reasons that will become apparent later on in this episode, I believe that Laverne Pavlinak was masterfully reading Detective Ingram and his partner's body language as they were on this drive. And I believe that that is how she pointed out the exact place of the body's location, assuming that in fact that was the case. I don't know anything about how Detective Ingram and his partner knew exactly where the body had been found. I don't know if they had gone up beforehand and placed a marker so that they themselves knew, in which case Laverne possibly, theoretically, could have spotted some kind of marker. But you have to remember, this is a wooded area. And if you've ever gotten lost in the woods, it's very easy, including on a road in the woods, for all of it to look the same. Windy turn after windy turn. How do you know which exact turn you're on? Unless you've driven that road a thousand times. And I have no indication that that's the case here. It's also possible that Laverne could tell where the body had been dumped because so many police had been in and out of the area and the area was disturbed. But I also believe that she was a master people reader. Now, if you can believe it, this story is just going to continue to get more and more crazy. Five days after John Sosnowski's arrest, Laverne Pavlinak calls Detective Ingram and she tells him that she wants to have a conversation with him and his partner. They need to come out to her house again. In response to this, in Detective Ingram's own words, quote, Oh crap, where are we going now? End quote. Obviously, this is because this investigation has already gone hither and thither, everywhere, all over the place, and Laverne Pavlinak has been at the center of it all. But obviously, they have no choice. They have to go out and talk to her again and see what she has to say, because... Again, she's at the heart and soul and center of their entire investigation, as well as their now arrest of John Sosnowski. So, once again, they go to Laverne's house. And the following is what Laverne tells them. When you drove over to JD's from your daughter's house, and you pulled into the lot... What did you see, if anything? Uh, I seen John standing with the young lady. And they appeared to be arguing in a playing way. He said to her, 
in the carpool. There was a point that Tanya Bennett apparently agreed to have sex with John. Yes, she did. When we arrived at the car point, they had a car remaining in the car. I understand that the of time went by and John came back to the car. Is that true? That's true. He went to the trunk and there was a rope in there. And he took the rope. I asked him, why do you need the rope? He said, I'm going to tie her up. More of a thrill this way. And Chirping Crickets is about all that I have to say about this. This is where I'm going to leave you, yes, on a cliffhanger, because there's a part two to this story. I thought I would get it all into one episode, but that just wasn't possible. But I promise that episode two will be just as good. I'm J.K. Richards, I'm your host, and I'm so grateful that you were here with me today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please contribute to our channel so that we can continue making wonderful content for yourself and for the rest of our audience. Once again, thank you, and take care, where, on this podcast, I hope to never be telling your story.